Welcome to Navigating Change with Shane and Mike. We're so grateful that you're joining us for the show today. And do we have a doozy for you? A doozy, Mike. We have a doozy. We're going to have Maxie Dunham on the show today. Have a great interview with him coming. But before we get into that, Shane, what's going on in your world? Well, I'm just wondering if we had Maxie on twice, would it be a double doozy? It might be. That sounds uh, that sounds very heavy, though. It does. It sounds heavy. Now, now double doozies, uh, in my vernacular, uh-huh. used to be sold at bakeries and malls. And they were two huge cookies with, like, white icing in between. Oh. Almost like an ice cream sandwich, except not ice cream. This thick cream kind yeah. of stuff. It was a double doozy. And Melissa would always say, I would like a double doozy. I'd go get her one. And back then, they only like cost $35, $40 for a sm- two small cookies with cream in the middle. Now, I'm sure they would be in the hundreds. Yeah, you're not resentful, are you? No, no, no don't even remember it. Yeah, I've never uh, heard that called a double doozy. A double before. doozy, yeah, yeah. So so that's, I feel like our audience, just taking a step forward, if they were listening to this podcast mm-hmm. to somehow move the needle yeah. positive in their life, I feel like it just happened. I'm sure someone's going to Google that. Do you, I Google about everything. Now. You do? Yeah, every All time right. there's a question, something I don't know, I go ahead and I just Google it. I'm comfortable with the fact I don't know very much, increasingly so. <laughs> yeah, increasing. More comfortable with that by the day. You know, but we do have a great show, don't we? We have an incredible show with uh, Maxie. He has uh, been a part of Methodism for a very long time. He's kind of a living legend. Yeah, I think if you, you know, I, I think if you had to list the uh, w- within the Wesleyan movement and the United Methodist Church, uh, people who I, I think somehow have had a voice that stood out from not just the voices, but even from the key voices. I would throw Maxie Dunham in that category. And you know what's really interesting about his life, first of all, that that he started preaching like when he was four years old. Well, he might not have been four, but he started really, really young. And the other interesting thing was that uh, his story uh, takes him unexpected places. God asks him to do unexpected things, things at times he wasn't even sure he was equipped to do. And then just the course of history kind of shaped where he ended up and and where he went. You know, a big piece of this for me, Mike, is legacy. Because when you think about legacy, Maxie Dunham is going to leave an incredible legacy of faith. And I remember many years ago, I was talking to a friend about legacy And we were talking about a a contentious point within the United Methodist Church back then. And I said, I don't want my legacy to be blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me as serious as I am. And he said, you have no choice as to your legacy. Other people will interpret that. You only choose your actions. And that really hit me. And when I think about choosing one's actions and how they come into legacy, I, I certainly think of Maxie Dunham. He chose at a very contentious time to be a part of the civil rights movement. He chose uh, at a very contentious time to to be a a sustained uh, Wesleyan and conservative voice in the United Methodist Church. And now at, you know, in his 80s, he's made another choice to move beyond what has in some ways defined him, at least institutionally, in his life as a United Methodist Church. Mike, I, I would just hope for all of us, if, if we could leave a legacy uh, 
one one hundredth of what Maxie Dunham is left, I, I would think you would live a you, you'd have a life well lived. Amen to that, Shane. Well, we're going to bring in Maxie Dunham. Maxie has been a preacher for close to sixty years. He's an evangelist, Bible commentator, writer. But like you said, Shane, this is a man who has lived life well. We are privileged to introduce to you Maxie Dunham. Well, Maxie, we are so glad to have you here. Uh, Just so our audience uh, knows, uh, I really met Dr. Dunham uh, a little later than most people. Uh, One is I didn't go to Asbury. So, So, Mike, there's kind of an Asbury connection. And I was a Candler guy. And and just as a disclaimer, I went to Candler because I wanted to be a pulpit preacher. And Fred Craddock taught preaching there. So that's the only reason I went to Candler. And I don't regret getting to spend a lot of time with Fred Craddock. But uh, I've met Dr. Dunham uh, later. I'm thinking maybe first uh, through uh, the confessing movement and then maybe through WCA. And I can tell everybody that, uh, that my opportunity to get to know uh, this man and to have him speak into my life in some ways has been one of the great uh, privileges uh, of my life. And I remember the first time he called me on the phone, I think it was ta- to talk about me considering being a part of WCA. This might be 10 years ago. And uh I, I just looked at my phone and, I, and it said Maxie Dunham. And I thought, Maxie Dunham is calling me. I, I never really thought this would happen. <laughs> so, sir, could you tell us just a little bit, uh, just kind of back up? I know you started preaching when you were 17. Could you tell us just a little bit about your ministry over the years? Uh, of, of course. Uh, I, I need to affirm you, though, by letting you know I I was not blessed to go to seminary at Asbury. Uh, I too went to Candler. I love it. Because during those days uh, uh, in in the Southeast, uh, Asbury was not uh, as much in favor Mm -hmm. uh, as it presently is. And uh, I did uh, answer the call to preach early, uh, got my... uh, local preacher's license, they called it then, when, when I was 17 and uh, uh, had a great uh, Methodist preacher that, uh, that shepherded me. I was really converted in a Baptist church, a little country Baptist church about 200 yards up the road from where we lived way out in the country. You ever notice and a lot of people are converted in Baptist churches? They do pretty well at that, don't they? They do an excellent job at that. This this guy, uh, Brother Grissom, had a fifth grade education, but he was a powerful, powerful preacher. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I left that little church was that there was no young people there. Uh, and I started going into town, we called it. Town was... 800 people going into town uh, in, on Sunday evening to attend youth groups. And uh, the, the Baptists need to know that I did try uh, Baptist <laughs> youth group. I did try the Baptist youth group, but it, the other was more dynamic. 
And I think the big thing was, and guys like the three of us need to remember this. The big thing was the, uh, the preacher, the Methodist preacher, uh, was genuinely interested in young people. Yeah. And uh, as a result of that, uh, I began to go to that to youth group on a regular basis, but actually didn't join that congregation. I didn't become a Methodist, really, until after I had uh, made the decision, uh, though I'd not shared it yet with the preacher. I had already made the decision that somehow I didn't know how uh, I was going to preach the gospel. I mean, my calling. Uh, has been to preach. Uh, and uh, so I wrestled through that uh, over a six or eight month period, dropped out of college. I just started to college, dropped out of college and uh, just to, to deal with that issue and uh, struggled with it and finally uh, said yes. And when I when I shared that uh, with this uh, young Methodist preacher, he said, uh, why have you waited so long? Huh. I knew that's what you were going to do anyway. <laughs> uh, so Maxie, was the call something you said you struggled with it? Was it something you tried to get out of or was it more something you needed absolute clarity upon? Well, I think I did to try a little bit to get out of it, but I, as we all should, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and if I, if I know, if I knew what my experience was, uh, I, I may have not, I may have struggled even longer. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, I just, uh, it's just an awesome thing oh, yeah. to be called. Mm. Uh, but, what I want to say to whomever's listening to us. We think there's 13 people who listen to this podcast, including, not 13. including my mother. Okay. Those 13 people, uh, <laughs> need to know, they need to know that they are called to. That's uh, right. They're called to. Maybe, uh, maybe not to, to pursue the calling that the three of us have pursued, uh, but they're called. And, and I think really, uh, Shane and Michael, uh, one of the limitations, I guess I would say, one of the limitations of the church is that, that we, have, uh, we have not focused enough on uh, vocation as it relates to being a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that uh, we, uh, when we have conversation with people, it, it isn't long before in that conversation, if, if it's a new person we've met, it isn't long before we say, you know, and what is your job? Yeah, uh, right. We, yeah, you know, but what we need to do is to follow that up with talk, talking about the difference between job, you know, you may have a job, but you have a vocation and that vocation is to be, a genuine servant uh, of the Lord. Uh, so, uh, Maxie, one of my struggles with the call, I was a teacher and a baseball and a basketball coach. And I really struggled where I could be best used by God because mm -hmm. I really thought God could use me in wonderful ways as a history teacher 
and a baseball and basketball coach. And I wasn't at all convinced that going into the ministry was the best use of, of my life. But once you get that call, you really have no choice, do you? That's right. That's right. And, and unfortunately, uh, guys, yeah. I, I think that far more people have that call to vocational ministry than really uh, respond to it. Uh, I mean, we run into people all the time who at age 50 talk to us about, well, you know, there was a day when sure. uh, I felt God was calling me, you know. So anyway, uh, the, the point we're making is, I, I hope we're making uh, the point. We always hope we make points on this podcast. Sometimes I feel we do better than others. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me. But, uh, you know, that uh, we, uh, we preachers, I think, uh, really don't call forth uh the giftedness of our people mm. uh, solidly and attractively. Sure. Enough. Uh, we, I, I don't think we really, <clears throat> I don't think we really do. When, uh, and, and I think the seminary, uh, I was at Asbury Seminary, you know, for, for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I can't, I wish I'd come to it sooner, but about two years uh, when I went there, I told them I'd stay for 10 years. Uh, and I, I did, but I wish I had, uh, come to this earlier about two years before my 10 years were up. Mm. I really, really became uh, stricken by and felt uh, some, a little bit guilty about, not having discovered this sooner that the seminary is a servant of the church and need to pay as much attention to the church and lay people as we pay to people who are going to be ordained. Mm. And I, I began in that last couple of years to talk about the seminary ministering to the whole people of God. Um, and, um, it, uh, it, I think it made some difference. Maxie, for those who don't know uh, much of your career uh, beyond, you know, you kind of come into Christ and kind of feeling this call and, and being prepared for it, what has kind of happened over your career? Um, and what type of ministry impact that, do you hope that you have had? <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I have, uh, some reservations uh, about talking about that. I, okay. I, I have been so, uh, so richly, richly blessed. Uh, I, I think really, and I, I, I don't say this a lot. Uh, I really feel that my ministry really has been shaped by uh, the fact that God has called me uh, to impossible tasks hmm. 
for which I was ill-equipped. I mean, not prepared for. And the two big illustrations of that is my my call to the ministry at the upper room. Uh, and the other, it was the call to Asbury Seminary. Uh, I w- <laughs> Nobody has ever accused me of being an academic. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, I, I, I just, uh, I, I, I just was amazed when uh, when I became the president of Asbury uh, because I'm not an academic. Just was somewhere you never saw yourself, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyway, the other was the the upper room. Uh, yeah. I um, I as I said, the call to preach was so important to me and so vital in my life. I. I never expected to do anything but be the pastor of mm. a local church. And uh, that that really has been what I've primarily done through the years. But uh, I, uh, I was called. I, I, I'd been in ministry out of seminary yeah. back in my home conference. And again, in the Methodist system, we think, you know, you belong to a conference and that's that's where you're going to spend your life. And, and that's all I knew. Uh, but the civil rights issue messed all that up. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I moved to California and uh, planted a church. I had planted a church in Mississippi and left that to plant a church in, in California. Uh, and I don't know, well, I will tell you, it's a long story and I won't tell the story, but somehow uh, the people in, in Nashville, uh, the head of the board of discipleship and the editor of the upper room, um, I don't know, I do know how one of them got my name, but anyway, uh, I just received this letter one day uh, from the world editor of the upper room saying that uh, the upper room wanted to start a ministry of prayer uh, with the constituency, the readers of the upper room, and there were 4 million readers. And they wanted to do more than provide resources, uh, just the resource of the upper room itself. And, and they wanted to put an emphasis on prayer and mm-hmm. nobody was talking about it then, but we began to talk about it, spiritual formation. Uh, prayer and spiritual formation and I'm you know open to the spirit as I seek to be Mm. uh, and in consultation with my wife (laughs) we we decided that uh, we we should just go back and talk to them what they were thinking about and I told them that the very fact that they were talking to me about leadership in prayer for the church showed what a terrible position the church was in. <laughs> uh, but so you you've just ended up in a lot of surprising places to yourself, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. And uh, and I, I just went back to, because I was curious about what they were okay. doing. And I had become deeply, deeply interested in cultivating my own devotional prayer life because I had been so limited 
in that. And I wrote, I wrote them a letter as I was leaving. Uh, and we didn't have what we have now in terms of the immediate <laughs> way you could communicate. I, I wrote them a letter saying I, I really uh, felt that I, I was ill-equipped for that. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they wanted to continue a conversation, uh, I'd be happy to do that. And we did, and I did, and those were 10, 10 great years uh, in, in my life. Uh, and uh, so, again, though, uh, I, I'm, I'm a preacher. And, uh, you know, after I'd been at the upper room for a while, uh, uh, the, the head of the board of discipleship that uh, the upper room is lodged with for administration is uh, the head of that was uh, Bishop Ed Tullis. And I had joined that Tennessee conference knowing that I probably would never go back to California. Mm -hmm. And my intention, my wife and I were both happy to get back across the Mississippi uh, our family, everything about it. Anyway, I got this call and, uh, from the Bishop and he said he wanted to see Jerry and me. My wife is Jerry. And he, he wanted to talk to us and we knew there was more than something casual about that, but we didn't dream that he was going to ask me to take a church. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what he did. Uh, and uh, that I ended back up uh, in as a pastor, which pleased me greatly. But I think the interesting thing about that, and I, 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 don't, I don't know that I've ever talked publicly about this. If, uh, if Ed had not been my bishop, you know, I, I doubt if I would have accepted his invitation. Hmm. I, I really, I really did feel, uh, you know, I, I believe that bishops should be spiritual leaders that equip the church. And, uh, I made a commitment to be faithful to that as a part of the connection. Hmm. Uh, and because it was my bishop, I gave that far more attention yes. than I would have otherwise. In fact, and again, I, I've never told this story personally. Uh, a dear friend, uh, not a dear friend, but a friend, outstanding preacher in California, had been elected bishop out there. And uh, he called me and wanted me to go to uh, uh, one of the great churches in Methodism in Colorado, Colorado Springs. And uh, I didn't feel the kind of uh, uh, pull mm -hmm. to accept his invitation. Uh, in fact, he even asked me to, after I refused it, he even asked me to recommend someone and I did. <laughs> and, and that someone served that church about 20 years. Oh, terrific. I, yeah, really, really. Wow. It's a, it's a marvelous story that it's hard to talk about because of, 
Anyway, sure. I went to, I came here to Memphis uh, because my bishop <coughs> uh, wanted me to. <clears throat> and he uh, he was under uh, pressure himself because uh, my predecessor, the reason he was needing a pastor here, my predecessor had been killed by his wife and she committed suicide. Oh my goodness. It's just, so the church was... Uh, uh, you know, in hmm. tremendous need for mm -hmm. astral presence. Oh my goodness. You certainly didn't walk into a normal situation. Did no, you? No, that's kind of the story of my life. And, yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'm just, you have to, there, there's no textbook no. for that. You have to learn to rely on the Holy spirit. Don't you? You really do. You really do. And, uh, that's a that's a, a great story within itself. Absolutely. Yes. Dr. Dunham, one of the, you know, when I look at your uh, ministry, God has used you in a, a lot of places. You've had a lot of impact in a lot of ways. Uh, you certainly are one of, uh, in, in my estimation, you're, you're one of the Methodists that I admire. I've always looked up to getting to know you at this stage in life. has been a great privilege for me. But we all know that the United Methodist Church particularly has fallen on hard times. It's, it's the last of the uh, American mainline to, to sort of blow apart. We're, we're sort of in the middle of that now. What are some of the factors that, that you feel led up to the current state of the United Methodist Church? And then what hopes do you have for the Methodist movement moving forward? Uh, I, I, I do think we need to talk about this, Shane, and talk about it publicly, but it's such a complex, complex uh, issue. The, uh, the daily newspaper here in Memphis, uh, just yesterday, uh, it, its headline article was about our church, uh, Christ Church in Memphis, voting to disaffiliate with uh, the UMC. And uh, that it, it's a complex thing. And the reason I, mm -hmm. it's fresh on my mind, uh, the reporter tried to tell the story and was, did, did a decent job. Uh, but other discussions are going on that, that, that they just don't understand the complexity of everything, Shane. I, uh, I was a faithful, really, I can say this without reservation. I have been a faithful Methodist preacher, you know, uh, and I have been committed uh, to our system, to our structure, I believe in a connectional church. I believe uh, that bishops have a role to play. I, I think they shouldn't be elected for life, but uh, I think they should be uh, set aside to play a significant role. I've been faithful to, to all of that, uh, being appointed, all of that, but have always felt, uh, not always, but 
almost from the beginning, Shane, <laughs> I've been a United Methodist pastor longer than there's been a United Methodist church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those in our audience who may not know, the, the Methodists yeah. and the United Brethren formed in 1968. So yeah, you have spanned the entirety of the entity, <laughs> haven't you, sir? Yeah, yeah. So you can imagine, though, having been involved in, in the church at, the, uh, you know, the different levels, uh, th this is a sad time for me. Yeah. You know, and you haven't just been involved. You, you've been a leader uh, and, and for decades, you've been a national leader in the church. I can only imagine uh, how sad that would be. Well, it is because, you know, I and and I'm I'm committed to the unit to the church. I'm committed to the church. Mm. Uh, and sometimes and that's what has happened now. Sometimes we have to make a distinction between that kind of commitment to the church and the unity of that, that idea and the different expressions of the church. And, and I had to rest. And Shane, I, uh, I really made a decision, and I'm, I'm not sure I've told this story publicly. I really made a decision that separation was essential uh, for in, in the United Methodist Church uh, at the special general conference that the bishops called in 2019 because I thought it was demonstrated there uh, the limitation and the reason that the church uh, was just diminishing both in terms of its numbers and its influence was uh, what we were struggling with there uh, at that general conference because it was a it was a constitutional crises mm -hmm. because uh, you know we elect bishops to to serve as the leaders of the church uh, we have a general conference that gathers and that's the voice of the church because uh, all of its members are representatives of the whole fellowship and uh, at, at that at that special call it, it was clear to me that we did have a constitutional crisis because uh, immediately after uh, we affirmed what we had always believed since the beginning of the UMC, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, homosexuality, uh, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, mm -hmm. and that marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. Uh, and we say all of that, uh, and we, we obviously haven't emphasized it a great deal, uh, but we say all that because we, we believe that's, uh, that's what the word says, you know, and we're trying to be faithful to the word. Uh, but that general conference closed in Rancor uh, and a whole jurisdiction said we're not going to abide by the discipline uh and uh, so that 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 was it for me and i went uh, i want you to hear this <laughs> i left that conference uh, cast down in my soul uh because of my love of this movement 
but I had planned a trip to Cuba. Uh, I knew a revival was going on in Cuba. I had visited Cuba before, and I knew that this revival was taking place, and I'd already pled, uh, planned this journey. Uh, my wife and I, with eight couples from Christ Church, went to Cuba, and uh, the revival was greater than I could imagine, and the robust expression of the Holy Spirit in revival just freed my spirit. Praise mm. God. Praise God, yes. Yes, yeah, freed my spirit. And uh, it, it became ironical, really. Uh, the Bishop of Cuba, that's an independent church, as you know, but normally the heads of these independent churches like the Church of Cuba, the Church of uh, uh, Brazil, the uh, Methodist Church in Britain, the leaders of those churches usually come to our general conference just as, uh, you know, fraternal representatives. And a number of them had been at that special conference. But the Bishop of Cuba had not come. And I didn't learn until I got there uh, the reason why he had not come. The Cuban government was wrestling with changing the governmental definition of marriage because their definition of marriage was the traditional definition, one man and one woman in covenant. And uh, that bishop had stayed in Cuba to lead his Methodist people to support what presently was the definition of marriage, one man, one woman. Uh, and they were opposed to the government changing that position. Uh, and I had just come from the conference where <laughs> the bishops, some of them, you know, were trying to do in Methodism what the government was doing in Cuba as it related to the issue of marriage. And, and I don't want that to come off as being the only issue. It, it really is a, a, a twofold issue. Number one, it's, it's an issue about scripture. But number two, and this is the complexity of it, it's an issue, it's an issue about governance and leadership. Uh, the, the present position of the United Methodist Church is, is, is what my position is. And so, you know, uh, it, it's just interesting uh, to even try to get your mind around that because uh, I'm, I'm taking the position that the discipline of the United Methodist Church has had for 40 years. Uh, and yet I'm, I'm separating from the church. Well, it is ironic, uh, and I think an outside person looking in would say, so you're leaving a church that agrees with you on paper, and that is kind of points to the complexity. Now, Dr. Dunham, one of the things that really struck me about your thoughts is in 2019 uh, at the St. Louis General Conference, 
that kind of began this process of, of you saying division, we have irreconcilable differences within the, the tribe of United Methodism. And then you go to Cuba, but and it seems like you have great confidence and excitement around the potential for a Methodist movement moving forward. Yes. Uh, that pessimism and that optimism, uh, you know, optimism around the movement, pessimism around the current incarnation, I think that probably represents a lot of our thinking. We have obviously disaffiliated. Uh, other churches are somewhere in those processes. Some will stay. Some will go. Churches will land in a lot of places. As I always say, you drop a plate. It doesn't break into two halves. You drop a plate. There's big pieces, little pieces, and shards that shoot everywhere. Last thing I'd like to talk to you about, sir, and you and I have touched on this in a couple of our personal conversations, but I've often joked that when I was in seminary, it was almost like uh, there was this assumption that we would all eventually become progressives. There was this idea that, that just given time, we're all going to drift to that left way of understanding gospel and all the things that you've talked about. And I simply didn't drift there. I, I don't get asked back to my seminary to speak because deep in my heart, I think they look at me and think, where did we go wrong with him? <laughs> but uh, as, as we look at that, you know, I'm never going to be a progressive. On the other hand, I'm not a fundamentalist either. That does sort of put us in an odd position, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, uh, when uh, when I was in Mississippi early, uh, I was uh, I was known as a progressive, uh, you know, because of my uh, commitment uh, to the whole race issue. Yeah, you were a leader in the civil rights movement in many ways. Well, uh, let's go on. We, we, let me tell my story. You got it. <laughs> but anyway, when I got to California, I was uh, a conservative mm. uh, because of my uh, stands on basic scriptural issues <laughs> um, and getting back to your your original question Shane yes uh, my I have this fear that if we aren't careful and diligent and passionate and sold out what comes from this division uh, Shane could end up not effective mm-hmm uh, but if we if we stay close to each other and stay close to why we're doing what we're doing and not settle back into habits and relationships and organizations that that we're used to, sure, uh, something great can happen, and that's what I'm praying for. That. Uh, uh, you know, all of us that are disaffiliating will encourage each other uh, and be bound together uh, in in a in a commitment uh, to make this Methodist movement uh, what uh, what it was when it came to this country years ago, uh, and and I believe further, Shane, that 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 could be 
uh, what God has put in place uh, to save us from this pressure. And it is, it's a, it's a corporate pressure to move us to a progressive position. I mean, really. Mm. It, and, and that's, that's the subject for another time. It is. But I, I think finding some, a place to stand. And, and for me, I, I always joke, you know, to, when, you're, when you're leaving, you fight the heretics. Once you leave, you fight the fundamentalists and uh, the Pharisees. And, and I, one of the things I've always admired about you, and, and I, I've read uh, some of your uh, writing, I, I've endorsed a, a book or two, which I was honored to do from you, sir. But you, you find space between uh, orthodoxy and yet saying, hey, we're, we're not going to be fundamentalists here. We're still going to be this warm hearted Wesleyan people. And that's been one of the resounding themes. And when I think about the legacy of Dr. Maxie Dunham, uh, that warm Methodist spirit is uh, what is in my heart. And I am grateful because I can tell you, sir, I believe I have uh, caught some of that warm Methodist spirit. And I am grateful to you for that. Dr. Dunham, as we begin to land the plane, two things. If people do want to hear more from you, is there a place uh, where we could send them? And number two, we would absolutely love to pray uh, for you and our audience to pray for you as well. All 13 of them. All 13, not including my mother. Well, yes, I don't. I can't speak for her. That's But your mother would be willing, really, if you ask her, she would pray for me. too. Oh, she would pray for you. And really, her prayer would have a lot more effect than anything Mike's going to produce. Yes, that's I, right. I'm sure of that, sir. <laughs> You've been watching yeah. me for yeah. a long time. But I, I would love to pray for you as well. So where could people uh, hear more from you? Where could we send them? And also, how can we be in prayer for you? Uh, well, I I have a web page. Uh, and, and I do post a blog weekly on that. Okay. And it's outstanding. Everybody, I, I encourage you to, to look up this webpage. Uh, and th- that would be one thing. But okay. And sir, where could they find that? Just uh, Maxie Dunham? Maxie Dunham 10, numeral 10, Maxie Dunham 10 at gmail.com. Okay. okay. So, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the most, if any of you, I, I'm, I'm going to depart, you know, I'm 88 years old. And if any of you ever want to assess, uh, my ministry, if you do it honestly, I think that you would conclude that my greatest contribution to the church is the workbook of living prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that workbook is, uh, it's it just, uh, uh, it's a usable kind of thing. And it came about, and we can't go back to the story, but it, it came about as a result of my own weakness and limitation when I went to that ministry uh, of the upper room in the area of prayer. So I, I think if, uh, if they're going to look at something that I've written, uh, and they're not going to look at a lot, but uh, I certainly would uh, would recommend that. Uh, the other thing is something that I'm doing right now, trying to get ready uh, a book uh, 
for um, Seedbed, mm -hmm. a, a Lenten devotional book uh, that would be called Saints Alive. Uh, mm -hmm. I've, I've tried to keep company with the saints in terms of my own devotional life. And the Upper Room, years and years ago, even before my time there, published a collection of little books. They called them the great devotional classics. Uh, here are two samples. Mm -hmm. they're, they're all in a, I think there are 28 of them, different saints, and they're all in a little box. I, I call it my box of saints. And I have lived with that uh, through the years. And I came back especially to live with it uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I was hospitalized with the COVID and uh, after being released uh, and I wasn't in the hospital long. It, it was, a, but anyway, I felt, you know, I was shut in. I, you know how things were those early days. Sure. And, and I began to live with these saints in a particular kind of way uh, again. And what I'm doing is uh, I'm, I'm going to, finish this little book, a devotional book, calling it Saints Alive. And I'll, I'll deal with uh, eight or 10 of them uh, and with what they, they're saying and uh, make, make a devotional uh, in relation to those. Uh, so that, that, those are the two things I would, if people want to know who I We look am. forward to, yeah. we look forward to those resources. That, that's outstanding. And how can we be in prayer for you? Listen, I'm, I am uh, in good health. I really am. Uh, but I do want to live to see the new movement take its shape. So I'd, I'd like, that's a very selfish prayer, but I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to live, to see that in place. And uh, I think we've got to pray for the whole movement of what I think the Holy Spirit is doing, has, has yes. done with your congregation. I mean, what you all did two or three years, I don't remember when it was, two or three years ago, uh, we've we got to pray that the action that you have taken uh, will not go unnoticed uh, and will have influence beyond, uh, beyond your, your normal boundaries there. Thank you. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that's that's incredible. I'd love to. Can I pray for you right now and pray for that? Right I really now? would like for you to pray for me right now. Okay, right let's now. pray. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for Dr. Dunham. We thank you, God, that he took time to share with us today. We thank you, God, that you have had an incredible movement in his life over the years. Seems like you invited him to do things that were beyond him. You gave him the courage, the support, the people around him, and you proved yourself faithful to him, to others. So we honor you for that right now. And God, uh, we thank you that you have put this movement, uh, Wesleyan Methodist movement upon his heart and how God you have used him to further it. And now, great God, 
we pray, Lord, that as you are continuing to work, your, continue, your kingdom continues to go forward, I do pray, God, that uh, Dr. Dunham would be able to see, see all that is coming next, that it would fill his heart with joy, and that he would understand how well he has done and how well you are doing and how you're going to carry this forward. We also pray, God, for just the kingdom work that's being done across uh, this country and across this world right now. We pray, Lord God, that we partner with you and your uh, desire to see people come to faith in Christ, for them to grow in Christ and for your kingdom truly to move forward to not just the next generation, but the generation after that and the generation after that until Christ does return. We love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray through Jesus' strong name. Amen. Maxie, Amen. If, I, if I may be so bold to offer a prophetic word, I would like to do that in prayer. Great and mighty God, thank you for the life and legacy of Maxie Donham. Thank you for the lives that he has touched and mentored and the exponential effect of his life throughout this world. Lord, I believe that you have extended his life and blessed him with good health for such a time as this. And I prophesy in the name of Jesus that he will have significant ministry impact between this time and whatever time you choose to take him home. Use him, bless him, give him wisdom, discernment, fresh wind, and fresh fire. And I pray it in the strong name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen and amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank both of you. Uh, Sir, have a great day. And we are honored that you took some time to spend with us and our audience of 13 people and my mother. Great. Great. <laughs> give, give, your, give your mother my love, especially. <laughs> I will, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. We want to thank Dr. Dunham for joining us today. If you'd like to hear more from him, you can visit maxidunham.com or search for his book, The Workbook of a Living Prayer. Well, thank you for joining us for Navigating Change with Shane and Mike. We'll talk next time. And remember this, keep the change. Keep the change.